0: You for this day, Lord. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for
1: providing for us everything that we need, and we thank you for all of the different events that have happened to us this day. And uh, we just give you praise and glory. I thank you, especially for my test and passing that and finishing up nursing school. And Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that you have promised to uh, reveal yourself to us. And I pray that you will help us to really listen and to hear, and that we will have. An open heart and an open mind to what you have to teach us through Dane, and we thank you for all of the work that he puts into the Bible study, Lord. And we thank you for your love, and we pray that you will be near to us in
2: Jesus' name, Amen. 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 Thank
1: you, Holly. And that's that's what we're looking at tonight. We're going to see the revelation of Jesus Christ as the Redeemer. So it was a very apropos (laughs) prayer there. All right. So, first, uh, we've got our little quote to set the mood for the night. This is by Harry Ironside. He was a Baptist preacher back in the first half of the last century. And he says, It is certainly cause for deep regret that to so many Christians, the book of Revelation seems to be what God never intended it should be a sealed book. This is the revelation of God's plan for the last days. And he is unsealing truths here, not sealing them up. So we want to keep that in the forefront of our minds that we're dealing with revelation, uh, where we we get to understand more, not become more confused. So our first section tonight, uh, we're looking at the Worthy One Sought. We're going to have three sections tonight, and uh, we're going to have the search for the Worthy One, the revelation of the Worthy One, and then the praise and worship of the Worthy One. So let's start here with the search. Let's see. Kelly, can I have you read first?
0: I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it.
1: Thank you. So the first issue we've got to deal with in this text is what is the scroll? We've got a scroll with seven seals on it. Uh, This is pretty common throughout scripture. We've got scrolls. Um, Often they're uh, proclamations from a king or deeds to a property, such as in um, ancient Israel times, they would have a scroll uh, where they would write the deed to a property. And after 70 years, uh, under Jewish law, uh, whoever originally owned that property would have it returned to them. Uh, and I'm pretty sure that's the kind of scroll that we're looking at here. It's it's going to be a title deed, um, and a title deed to the earth. So let's look at some texts that help us to come to that conclusion. And first one I think is quite interesting. Oftentimes the prophets will speak of a scroll or some sort of a book that's in the right hand of God. Ezekiel speaks about it. Daniel speaks about it. John will speak about it again um, in in the middle of the book of Revelation. Uh, So Kelly, could you read this one for us as well, this scroll of lamentations?
0: Now you, son of man, listen to what I'm speaking to you. Do not be rebellious like the rebellious, that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I am giving you. Then I looked, and behold, a hand was extended to me, and lo, a scroll was in it. When he spread it out before me, it was written on the front and back, and written on it were lamentations, mourning, and woe.
1: Thank you. So this scroll uh, that we see throughout prophetic literature, uh, it's written on the front and the back, which is consistent with the um, with the deed to a property in Israel. Uh, also it's sealed up, but it's, it's here in conjunction with lamentations, mourning and woe. So there's some sort of sadness, some sort of distress that's, that's uh, entailed in this document. And uh, Kelly, could I have you read this one as well? Uh, creation under captivity, uh, why exactly is there a title deed to the earth that is disputed?
0: Romans 8 19 and 20 for the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revelation for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God.
1: Thank you. So we do see that the earth is held under captivity. Uh, That captivity is the curse, uh, which was put onto the earth in Genesis chapter 3. We discussed that in one of our Foundations videos, uh, but we're going to dive in a little deeper here because that's primarily what the text in Revelation here is focused on in chapter 5, is uh, what gives Jesus Christ the right to send judgment on the world uh, in the last days. And this title, Deed to Earth, is going to be central in the legal right but also the uh the redemptive right that christ has to do that Uh, but this title deed is held by someone else though it's in the right hand of god it belonged at one point to another uh kelly could i have you read this for us again
0: Luke 4, 5, and 8, and he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, quote, I will give you all of this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall be yours. And Jesus answered him, quote, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only.
1: So, this is during the temptation of Christ. Immediately after his baptism, he went into the wilderness for 40 days and was, um, at the end of those 40 days, tempted by Satan. One of the temptations was that Satan would give him all the kingdoms of the earth if he would bow down and worship Satan. Uh, this has often, by many uh, Bible students, been correlated with the temptation of Eve in the, Bi- or in the book of Genesis, where uh, where Eve subjects herself to the serpent, and then man subjects himself to the woman and the serpent, uh, putting God's created order on its head. Uh, well, here, Satan is offering the same thing to Jesus Christ. He's saying, if you subject yourself to me, I'll hand over all these kingdoms of the earth to you. And these kingdoms of the earth are going to be Jesus Christ's um, right to take possession of but they're not going to be given to him by satan he'll be taking them after having purchased them uh, from god not from satan because remember back in chapter four we saw that god is sitting on the throne of the universe only the throne of the earth is under dispute and uh, so that's what we're looking at here is the throne of the earth um, specifically so who is the god of this world uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 3 through 4, Paul identifies the God of this world as Satan. He says, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So this uh, ruler or God of the world is the enemy of Christ, the enemy of Christians, the enemy of God. Uh and he is the one who is blinding uh, unbelievers on the earth. And the world lies under his power. John in 1 John 5.19 says, we know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So we being of God are a special creation in him uh, whose inheritance is in heaven. Yet those who remain on this earth, we often say they, they reap their rewards on earth. Well, their rewards are of themselves, of the world, uh, lying in the power of the evil one. So, even up and up to First John five nineteen, which was written in about eighty five A.D. Um, or about ninety A.D. prior to the Book of Revelation, but still uh, quite late in the uh, early Church age, Satan is still being identified as the ruler of this world, and rightly so, because although Jesus Christ has paid the price. He has not yet taken possession of the earth. He rules over the church, but the church does not rule over the world. Thus, he rules over his people in the world, uh, but he has not yet taken possession of the world as its rightful ruler, but he will do that. So that brings us to how did this happen? How did the title deed end up in the hands of Satan? How did he become the ruler of this world? And it starts all the way back in Genesis one twenty six. What was God's creation purpose? Why did he make the earth? Why did he put man on it? Uh, Mark, if you're on, could I have you
2: read this? Okay. Um, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let him rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth.
1: Thank you. So this is a purpose statement. God is speaking to himself within the Trinity and saying, let us make man in our image. Um, So there's some sort of a similarity between God and man in image, while still there is a separation and a difference in the creator and creature. So we are unlike him, but we are created in his image. We cannot attain... uh, to godhood um, but we do reflect him so this was his purpose that we be in his image and that we have dominion over this creation so his purpose in creating the earth was to have man ruling over it in subjection to himself but what happened after that mark could i have you read here in genesis 3
2: Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it, cursed to the ground because of you. In toil you'll eat of it all the days of your life. And this is what well. both thorns and thistles are shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread, till you turn to the ground, because from it you were taken, and for for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Thank you. So uh,
1: probably a a controversial
2: verse here. Uh,
1: God says that the purpose for cursing man was because he listened to the voice of his wife. And this is not um, by merit of her being his wife, and that Adam should not have listened to her under any circumstances. It's the juxtaposition between his wife and God. His wife offered him a different command than God offered to him. God said, don't eat it. His wife said, eat it. So here, God is saying, because you chose to put your wife above you, rather than putting me above you, you are cursed. Uh, And and uh, see also the ground will be cursed because of you adam is at this point king over the earth because adam is cursed as the king so also the earth is cursed because it is his kingdom he says in toil you will eat of it eat from the ground all the days of your life but thorns and thistles it shall grow for you so as he attempts to bring his sustenance out of the ground where before it was provided for him through the garden, it's going to be difficult for him. The earth will not be his friend. In other words, there will not be any sort of symbiosis between man and the world. Uh, you will eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You will eat bread till you return to the ground. So we see death in entering the scene because from it you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return. So now we, uh, we get into the theology of all this. What exactly is going on at the beginning of creation in the very formative chapters of Genesis? And I think Elliot Johnson uh, does a very good job of explaining it uh, very briefly. What exactly is the conflict that's happening here? Mark, could I
2: have you read this quote by Elliot Johnson? Sure. Man's delegated right to rule on earth as steward was lost to the serpent. They no longer longer saw themselves as stewards of God, but rather as enemies of God. And as enemies, their determination was to be like God themselves. As the enemy, Satan spoke as though he were God. So the serpent has usurped God's right to claim the allegiance of mankind. Now the serpent exercised rule over the man and the woman in their disobedience. Right. So man and woman, uh,
1: by disobeying God and obeying the serpent, have actually put themselves uh, under subjection to the serpent. They've willingly submitted the kingdom to the serpent. So now the angel is going to pronounce a search. Um, Because this title deed has been lost, Uh, we're going to need some sort of a redeemer, someone to take this scroll back from the hands of the enemy, because as we've looked at before, a quote by Charles Ryrie, that God must be victorious in the same arena which he was seemingly defeated. Therefore, while the earth uh, or before the earth will pass away, Christ must redeem the earth from the hands of the evil one. And that promise of redemption uh, takes place right in the beginning of Genesis as well. So in Genesis 3.15, God speaking to the serpent, a curse, blesses mankind as well, says, And I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. This is often called the proto-evangelium, meaning the the first gospel, uh, the very beginning of God's promise to redeem the earth through a kinsman redeemer. So what does Eliot Johnson have to say about this promise? He says, since the same word shoup, is used in both cases, being strike, strike refers to a death blow. Since the serpent's power is death, he apparently strikes the first blow. The serpent snipped at the offspring's heel, as serpents do, and the offspring died. Since it is a death blow, how can the offspring return a death blow? This final offspring of the woman must somehow overcome the death blow before he can return a more severe death blow to the head. The answer as to how death would overcome remains unrevealed at this stage in Revelation. And by this stage in Revelation, he's speaking of the beginning of Genesis. In other words, Adam and Eve did not fully comprehend how God would affect this redemption, but they trusted and had faith in him that he would. This brings into the narrative of scripture what we call situation vacant. There is the promise of a specific person, but the details of that person have not fully been revealed yet. So he says, a situation vacant promise, a promise about an individual in some detail, yet not explicit personally. The detail is distinct enough that in time, the identification can be made. At the time of the prophecy, the prophet may not know the history, uh, know the history pers- the history of the person he talks about. So uh, while God is revealing this to Adam, He may not know exactly who that redeemer will be, but he understands that it will come from the woman. And we see this in Genesis 3.20. As soon as the cursing is finished, Adam names his wife. He says, now the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. God pronounced a curse of death on Adam and Eve. And Adam's first response is, my wife's name will be Eve because she is the mother of life or the living. And it might seem contradictory until we realize that the curse on the serpent was a promise of restitution for man and the woman. And Adam is holding on to that promise and in faith, naming his wife Eve, which means living. Uh, and to see that they didn't fully understand um, at first, what god was promising uh, in in the person of who they he was promising but they did understand that god was promising a redeemer in genesis 4 1 it says that now the man had relations with his wife eve and she conceived and gave birth to cain and she said i have gotten a man child with the help of the lord this uh this phrase doesn't do it justice in english in the Hebrew, uh, that I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord, that help of the Lord would be with the promise of the Lord, or as the Lord has helped me. It's, it seems relatively apparent that Eve believed that her first son Cain was that promised seed who would overcome the conqueror, or the, uh, the evil one. And unfortunately, we all know the story of Cain and know that that didn't work out very well, and that in fact, Cain became a seed of the serpent. And he killed his brother Abel, but in Genesis 4.25, God acts and he preserves that seed promise to Eve. He says, Adam had relations with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring in place of Abel, for Cain killed Abel. And now, I know you guys all probably just like me, when you go through scripture, you get to a section of names, and you just want to skip it. And I'm not saying don't skip it, but it's worth going through and studying these names. Uh, In Genesis 4, we get the line of Cain. In Genesis 5, we get the line of Seth. In Genesis 10, we get what's called the table of nations, where we get uh, the offspring of Noah down through uh, Terah, which is the father of Abraham. And then the rest of Genesis is tracing Abraham's lineage. Uh, all the book of Numbers is naming the individuals of the tribes of Israel. Then we get to Matthew and Luke, and we get Jesus Christ's genealogy. And by the time we get there, we're probably wondering, what's the deal here? Well, it's also pretty interesting that in most of these genealogies, we're not getting family trees. We're getting a single name from each generation, and sometimes skipping generations. Well, the purpose in giving these genealogies is not to tell us who was alive at this time, but it's to tell us how faithful God is to his promise of a Redeemer seed through the woman. And especially in the book of Luke, In chapter 3, where we see Jesus Christ's lineage, we see Jesus Christ traced all the way back to Adam, all the way back to God. We see that this promise that God made to the man and the woman at the beginning, in the form of a curse against the serpent, um, he has been faithful to all the way until he provided that redeemer. So here's a little summary of that first section. Who is worthy to open the scroll? The scroll is associated with lament and mourning and woe. Probably it is the title deed to earth's throne, God's intended position for man. Satan, the ruler of this world, uh, Satan is the ruler of this world. And there is an overcomer promised in the form of a situation vacant promise. All right, Mark, could I have you read verse four and five from Revelation five?
2: And I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. Thank you. So John's first reaction
1: is weeping. He sees this title deed. He sees that no one in heaven is worthy to open it. And uh, some some people postulate that he is weeping um, because he wants to know what's written in it and he's curious. I don't think that's it at all. I think he fully understands the importance of this scroll and that redemptive history as well as uh, God's glory and dominion is wrapped up in this scroll and that God's God's own integrity is wrapped up in this scroll because he promised a redeemer. And if none are found, then Satan has been victorious. And I think that is the understanding that drove John to tears. Uh, but the angel says, Stop weeping. Behold, a lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome, has to open the book and its seven seals. <clears throat> So this brings us into these genealogies a bit more. Uh, In chapter 12 of Genesis, God calls Abram out of all of the nations and gives to him a special promise. And that promise is of a kingdom, but also an heir. So in Genesis 12, 1 through 2, he says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. In Genesis twenty-two seventeen 17 through 18, God gives Abram further revelation as to how he will bless the earth through him, and also how the promises of blessing in the kingdom will come through Abraham's seed. So he says, indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens, and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So we see that all the nations will be blessed through the seed of Abram. and he has gone from uh, your uh, I will greatly multiply your seed so he's gone from a multiple down here to what is a singular. But the Hebrew word for seed is Zera, and Zera is what's called a cumulative noun. So it's a singular noun with the idea of plurality. It's, it makes it kind of hairy in here to distinguish whether or not God is speaking of multiple seeds or a single seed, uh, but it appears that in verse 18 that in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Uh, this seed is likely referring to the individual seed, the singular promised seed that will bring redemption to the earth, and that would be Jesus Christ through, her, through whom the whole earth is blessed. In Genesis 49, we see this promise uh, brought down four more generations to the house of Judah, and that goes through Isaac and Jacob, and uh, in the storyline of Joseph, goes to Joseph's brother, Judah. So it says in Genesis 49, 8 through 9, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion who dares rouse him up. This scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, Shiloh is peace, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Uh, Judah was the fourth son of Jacob, it was originally um, the uh, the inheritance was originally supposed to go to Reuben, but uh, Reuben lost this right to uh, have the kingdom because he slept with one of his father's other wives, who was not his mother, thankfully, but still gross. Uh, and then Simeon and Levi uh, disinherited their um, part in the inheritance. Um, during, oh, it's uh, Genesis 34, I think, where uh, one of the nations that was neighbors with the, uh, the sons of Jacob took Jacob's daughter, Dana, and had relations with her. Well, Simeon and Levi tricked all of those men into circumcising themselves, saying, if you circumcise yourself and all of your people we'll let you have our sister Dinah, And while they were weak from their circumcision, Simeon and Levi went in and slaughtered them all. Uh, so for these purposes, the first three sons of Jacob did not take possession of this inheritance, and it passed it down to Judah. Judah was also the one who was reluctant to sell Jacob into slavery. Um, so Judah here takes up the scepter, takes up the inheritance of this kingdom that was promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and through him will come this seed, this promised redeemer. So in 1 Samuel 16, 12 through 13, we have a descendant here uh, who has been anointed of God uh, through this kingdom promise. So in 1 Samuel 16, 12 through 13, it says, so he sent and brought him in, speaking of David, Now he was ruddy with beautiful eyes and a handsome appearance, and the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward, and Samuel arose and went to Ramah. Now this is another very very well-known story from Scripture. The uh, history of David takes up probably the largest section of history about any one individual in scripture except for Christ himself. So uh, most of us would then be aware that David was not the first king of Israel, but Saul came before him. And Saul was the choice king of the people, though he was anointed by God, the people had asked for a king. And God said to Samuel, and Samuel came to God saying, They ask for a king. God said, they have not asked this against you. They've asked this against me, for they've rejected me as their king and have asked for a man to rule them like the nations around them. So God reluctantly gives them Saul. And Saul is also a mighty man and handsome man, uh, but he is from the tribe of Benjamin. This should have sent up red flags to all of um, the Israelites because they knew that the inheritance would pass through Judah. And True to God's word the inheritance does pass through Judah for David takes up the throne after Saul and to him is the inheritance of God for David was a man after God's own heart and Saul was not So in 2 Samuel 7:12 through 13 uh, we see that David is then promised an eternal throne from God and this is after David tells the Lord that he that God has blessed him mightily And he seeks to build a house for God, because up until this point, they're in a tabernacle, a tent, worshiping God. He wants to build him a permanent house in Jerusalem. So uh, here in 2 Samuel, when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So, this again, we look at um, just as most prophecy will have an immediate fulfillment and then a later complete fulfillment. Uh, The immediate fulfillment of this is in David's actual son, Solomon. But Solomon's kingdom was not built forever. Solomon did build the house for the Lord, the physical temple, but Jesus Christ would come later and build a perfect house for his name, and the kingdom of Jesus Christ would be the kingdom forever, and Jesus Christ is a descendant of David, and that is the purpose of the genealogy in Matthew, that David is the descendant of Abram, and Jesus is the descendant of David. And in Luke 9, 20 through 22, we see that Christ is the anointed one of God. Uh, So he says, and he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, The Christ of God. But he warned them and instructed them not to tell this to anyone, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Uh, This name, the Christ of God, this is understood in a very Jewish context. Christ is the Greek word for anointed, Christos. So they are saying that Jesus is the anointed one of God, the one anointed to take the throne. He is the promised seed to come through Abram, through David, um, but also he is the redeemer. So they are saying, essentially, you are the king. And Christ adds to that revelation the piece of it that they missed, that he is also the redeemer, not just as a king but also as a suffering servant. So he says he must suffer and be rejected and be killed and raised up on the third day. And they didn't understand this, likely because they didn't want to understand this. They were looking for a political redeemer. So now we have the situation vacant identified. John weeps over the fate of the earth, but an angel identifies the savior of the earth, fulfilling this situation vacant. He says he has been revealed. So now...